Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Killing Women. In the late 70s, four young women went missing around the Michigan State University campus in East Lansing. All four women subsequently were found dead. Were the brutal murders connected? Was there a serial killer on the loose? Forty years later, retired police sergeant Rod Sadler answers that question for us as he discusses the case which is the subject of his latest book, Killing Women. And he also offers a chilling warning. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to another episode of Murder Most Foul. My guest today is Rod Sadler. He is a repeat customer to Murder Most Foul, and only because he has written another fabulous book. Uh, I do uh, recommend that you go back and, and, and catch the first podcast I did with Rod, which was early on in my podcast career. He was one of the first few, and the book was called To Hell I Must Go, and it's the story of the Michigan Lizzie Borden, and I'll leave it at that. You'll find it very fascinating, but today we're talking about another fascinating book, which is fairly hot off the press called Killing Women. Welcome, Rod. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure to be here as always. So um, let's start at the beginning, Rod, in a sense that the simplest way to put this together, there were four murders, known four murders, um, three of them happening fairly close together, disappearances, which turned out to be murders. One, the initial one, was separated and there, that one has a, a very direct connection to who ends up being the murderer. So why don't you start us out on our, our four cases here? Sure, um, it, this actually began in the fall of 1976 uh, in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, near the Michigan State University campus. Don Miller was dating a young woman by the name of Martha Sue Young and they had actually become engaged. And they were only engaged for about a month, uh, not a very long period of time. And uh, Martha Sue Young became concerned about um, Don's personal life and, and her concerns about how he might support her and things like that. And so ultimately to make a, a, a long story short, um, she broke off the engagement a couple days, um, actually just before Christmas, as I recall. And um, on New Year's Eve, and they remained friends. Um, Don told her to keep the ring, the engagement ring, and they would remain friends. And so on uh, New Year's Eve of 1976, going into 1977, uh, Don um, asked if he could go with her to a babysitting gig that she had on New Year's Eve. And she said, sure. Uh, she checked with the people, hey, can, can Don come along with me? You know, we're still friends. And they said, yeah, absolutely. So they went to uh, babysit and, uh, they left, they went back to Don Miller's home where he lived with his parents in East Lansing. And they watched uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, a classic comedy, and uh, had some pizza and pop. And he left to take her home. And that's the last anybody saw of her. Uh, the following morning, New Year's Day, 1977, uh, her mother woke up at 7 a.m., discovered that Martha Sue hadn't come home. Um, immediately called the, the Miller home. Um, both Don and his parents came over and 
Don said the last he saw of Martha Sue Young, she was sitting on the porch of, of their home and um, she waved to him as he backed out of the driveway and drove away. Um, incidentally, I might add that it was uh, uh, 16 degrees out or 11 degrees outside with 16 mile an hour sustained winds. Um, very unlikely for a young lady to sit on a porch, stargazing in that type of weather, so to speak. Um, the police became immediately uh, suspicious of Don because his story wasn't adding up. And he was very calm, very, um, he was forthright, but he wasn't offering anything other than a yes or a no. And uh, they subsequently did search his car that same day and discovered a small blood spot on the front seat. And um, that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, he became their prime suspect, but they had no body. And this went on for 18 months. Now, we should point out at this point, and I should have done it in the beginning, but we can do it now, is your knowledge of this has to do, I didn't uh, put this in the beginning, uh, but it is, again, on the other podcast, you may, you spent several, several, several um, years with the uh, poli with police as a, as a detective, as a, and so you had, um, you've had contact over the years with direct contact with your work situation with police and other investigators that were on the case. So um, obviously you used other records as the book footnotes, but you had direct um, input from, so I, I want people to understand how you come to this case. Oh, sure. Uh, absolutely. Um, I've served 30 years in law enforcement and literally for that entire 30 years, uh, because the, the Don Miller case um, occurred right here in mid-Michigan, literally about 15 miles from where I lived at the time, um, I followed that case closely as I began my college career. And because Don Miller was a graduate of the Michigan State University's School of Criminal Justice. Um, but throughout my career, uh, I realized that uh, probably 75% of the people involved at some point in the Don Miller investigation were friends of mine that I had come to know over 30 years in law enforcement. And that included judges, uh, prosecuting attorneys, the defense attorney, the detectives, the, the, uh, the police officers that were involved, uh, the pathologist that did the autopsy. All of those people were acquaintances of mine. And so I used every avenue that I could to get information about this case, in addition to the police reports, but uh, personal interviews with friends of mine that were part of the investigation. Time obviously goes by and they're not, they're not A, finding a body, and they're not even, uh, uh, now in that time there wasn't cell phones, so they couldn't ping her phone or anything like that. She um, is sort of just missing. She, it's like she just disappeared off the face of the earth, literally. And uh, about 18 months later, oh, I might add that, that part of the initial investigation with Miller uh, included some polygraph tests or lie detector tests, uh, which he failed. Um, and it didn't take long for his dad to realize that, um, that his son was a prime suspect and his dad immediately hired an attorney, literally within two weeks, which prevented the police from, from talking to him at any further point. So again, their investigation investiga detector test showing, uh, you know, uh, uh, dissembling, if you will, but that's, it's certainly not admissible in court and it's not even going right. to get you far as evidence to, to do search warrants or anything. It helps them out. I'm sure they, even if they don't think he did it, it's, he knows something he he's hiding something. And so that, that obviously tells him, well, you know, we're pretty much, this is a good direction to go. But as you say, now he's lawyered up. That's, it's going to have to come another way. That's exactly right. And so uh, with, with his lawyer in place, they can't talk to him. So it's back to good old fashioned police work. 
And that really, a lot of that consisted of um, searches, uh, physical searches. Um, there was no activity uh, through her checking account, anything like that. Um, and so the case really over the next 18 months went cold. And it was in June of 1978, about 18 months after, um, after Martha Sue Young's disappearance. Oh, no, let's back up. I, I apologize. Uh, it was about nine or 10 months after her disappearance when some pheasant hunters here in mid-Michigan came across her clothing. And her clothing was laid out uh, in, I'm going to describe it as a swampy, overgrown, uh, brushy area out in the country near a lake. Uh, and when the pheasant hunters found the property or found her clothing, it was laid out as if she had laid down herself and simply disappeared. And by that, um, for, for your listeners um, to describe it, her bra was inside of her sweater. Her sweater was inside of her winter coat. Her pants were at the base of her coat. Her shoes and socks were at the base of the, the pant legs. Um, it was literally as if she had disappeared. The police thought maybe there was a ritualistic religious overtone to, the, um, to that. Uh, and though they still didn't have Martha Sue Young's body, they concluded at that point that she was dead. And uh, I'm not mistaken, there was also uh, a purse with identification. And uh, yes. aside from the clothing that could be easily matched by the parents, uh, you, you know, you can't miss when you got a driver's license and a billfold and and Correct. jewelry and whatever in a purse. Yeah. And so if you'll remind me, because I don't want to, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here, but um, later in the interview here today, uh, please ask me about why he did that. Okay. Um, uh, because that I, I picked up on that after the book was published and I think it's very significant. Um, so 18 months later, um, after Martha Sue Young's initial disappearance, uh, there was a, a young co-ed from MSU who worked on the campus by the name of Marita Choquette. And Marita worked at the WKAR radio station. Um, she was working on her second bachelor's degree. And she lived in a small town of, uh, called Grand Ledge, Michigan, which is just to the west of Lansing. And that's where she was last seen on the evening uh, prior to her disappearance. She was seen by her neighbors. They spoke briefly. And the following morning uh, at the WKAR studios on the Michigan State University campus, her boss came into work and pulled into the, the parking lot and noticed Marita's vehicle there. But it wasn't parked where it normally was. And she thought, well, Marita must have gotten here early. <clears throat> well, as it turns out, Marita was nowhere to be found. And so she called Marita's uh, dad who lived uh, over in the Grand Rapids area. He was a minister and uh, said, hey, Marita is, is not here. Um, and so her father sent a friend to Marita's apartment to look and see if maybe she was there and she wasn't. And so that began uh, a missing person investigation into Marita Choquette's disappearance. And they began by um, speaking to former boyfriends. She had been married at one time, um, really didn't, didn't have too much to go on other than her car. There was nothing unusual about her car uh, when they recovered that. Um, and about two weeks later, um, south of the MSU campus, southeast of the MSU campus, uh, was a, a field and a uh, a farmer was uh, back there with his backhoe, was gonna unload some rocks, and he noticed a pile of concrete, um, like a silo slabs, the siding from a silo. And uh, it was covered with flies, and the, the odor was horrific. 
And so he finally moved one of those and discovered Marita's body. And uh, of course, he didn't know who it was at that time. She was, she was identified through dental records, but she had been stabbed uh, 17 or 19 times. Uh, her hands were uh, cut off. She was laying with her, um, she was laying on her back, but her, her legs were tucked under her as if she had been kneeling and then fell backward. Um, and police were baffled. They did not make the connection to Martha Sue Young's disappearance. There was some, some possible speculation, but the Ingham County Sheriff's Office, the detectives there were confident that, that Martha Sue Young's disappearance uh, in East Lansing was simply a boyfriend-girlfriend dispute. And, and he likely killed her, but it wasn't related to this. This was a, a pretty violent crime. And so they began working um, kind of uh, apart from that. Um, they were looking at some other suspects that might be involved. And on the same day that Marita Choquette's body was found, another MSU co-ed came up missing, a young lady by the name of Wendy Bush. On the day that Marita bod Marita's body was found, Mar um, Wendy Bush uh, disappeared from the MSU campus. She was reported missing. She'd been seen the night before with, with someone near the MSU library. But Wendy Bush was kind of a free spirit. Um, she loved to make new friends. She would talk to anybody. She'd gotten in trouble at work simply for, for chatting with people when she should have been working because she was a very friendly person. And um, so she came up missing and the Michigan State University police began looking into her disappearance. There was some speculation that she might've left the state, that she might've gone to the West Coast, that she might've gone to Pittsburgh. Um, she was very outgoing personality. So the police weren't convinced that there was any foul play involved in Wendy Bush's disappearance. That was her family at all? Did she have family that was concerned or did they sort of buy into this? Yeah, she's a free, she'll call us when she wants to, or was there no one to look for her? Well, actually, her family was concerned, especially her mother, because Wendy was um, an epileptic and she was on medication and all of her belongings were still in her dorm. Um, so while police, you know, they were like, uh, OK, this could be a missing person or maybe she did just leave. They weren't convinced either way. Her mother was convinced that that there was foul play involved, although they had had a big falling out and she hadn't talked to her. Uh, for some time um, over tuition and, and Wendy's um, future plans, you know, what, what she wanted to do with her life and what degree she wanted, things like that. So her, her family was convinced that, that there was probably foul play involved. And so it was about six weeks later when a Lansing school teacher by the name of Christine Stewart uh, she lived with her husband uh, just off the Michigan State Uni University campus in a little subdivision. And he was a contractor and they'd been married, I think, seven or eight years. Uh, just a, a wonderful couple. Everybody loved them. Everybody loved her as a school teacher. And uh, she had to take her uh, car to get some repairs done on it in Lansing. And so she drove to Lansing. Um, her husband had already left for work for the day. She drove to Lansing, dropped off her car, and she grabbed a bus back to a shopping center near Lansing called Frandor. And she, and she got off the bus there, and she was simply going to walk the mile or so back to her home. And as she turned the corner uh, off of uh, Coolidge Street onto Fair Oaks, um, she saw uh, one of her husband's workers, a colleague of her husband's, and he stopped at the intersection and teased her a little bit about walking and saying, hey, did your husband take your car away from you? And, and she said, no, no, I just dropped it off to be fixed. And she continued walking and he left. And that was the last she was ever seen. Except there was a woman who was driving along Coolidge 
and had to brake suddenly because a car turned in front of her. And as she came to a stop, she could see a car stopped on Fair Oaks where uh, Christine Stewart had just turned the corner. And she saw a man and a woman arguing and wrestling. And the man turned and looked at her and they made eye contact and she freaked out and she took off. And she was so upset by what she had seen that she completely blocked it out. She knew she had seen something, but she had blocked it out. And she called the police that night at like after midnight. And she said, I think I saw something, uh, but I can't recall exactly what it is. And so they began an investigation. Uh, The East Lansing police uh, immediately began a missing person investigation when her husband had come home that night and she wasn't there. And so they were out the next morning searching everywhere. They found her glasses in the area where she was last seen. Um, But they really didn't know about this witness. And when they did discover this witness, they took her to be hypnotized. And what she recalled was she recalled a man and a woman wrestling. He was pushing her into a car. She described the car. She described uh, the stickers on the window. She described, I think, a crack in the windshield. Um, She described the color of the license plate. Michigan still had um, uh, some bicentennial plates that were red, white, and blue. She described that. And uh, as the, the hypnosis interview went on, she described him reaching for a book on the dashboard as he was pushing this woman into the car. And the deeper that the uh, hypnosis session went, it came out that the book she was describing was actually a knife. She watched him grab a knife off the dash of the car and she watched him plunge it down into the front seat three times because she couldn't see the the woman's torso at that point because she was down across the front seat. But she watched him thrust the knife into the car three times and actually saw blood on the, on the uh, blade. And they did. uh, And I'll give the, the police department credit for this. They did a forensic interview forensic hypnosis interview. And I've done two of those in my career um, because I was a police composite artist in my career. And so I know exactly what goes on in those. And as they hypnotize her and question her, there is a police artist there who's not asking questions. The psychiatrist is asking the questions and the police artist is drawing the the composite sketch based on what she's telling the psychiatrist. And she came up with the drawing so close to Miller that when she saw it in the local paper, she freaked out because they thought, or she thought that the police had released her drawing when when Miller had actually been arrested by that point. So it was very, very strange. Uh, But prior to Miller's arrest, it was two days after Christine Stewart's disappearance, the city of Lansing, East Lansing, the entire mid-Michigan area are now in panic mode because they figure there's four women missing or one had been found um, and there's a killer on the loose. Uh, Serial killer really wasn't a term that was used that often then, but that's what it was. It was a serial killer. And so two days after, um, after Christine Stewart's disappearance, out in Eaton County, uh, an, adja- an adjacent county to Ingham County, which is a- incidentally where I spent my career in law enforcement, um, a young lady uh, who's 14 years old um, was at home with her brother and uh, they lived in a brand new home. It had only been built like two months earlier And there was a pond out and back, back in some woods. And her 13-year-old brother was out uh, fishing. And every day at three o'clock, they had to call their stepmother on the MSU campus 
just to report in and, and here's your list of chores to do and what's going on at home. And so she went out and back and she called for her brother, Randy, and said, hey, it's time to come in. We got to call um, our stepmom. And Randy was off fishing. So she went back around to the front of the house and she noticed a car in the driveway. And as she walked in and she thought, um, like Randy did later, that it was a, a contractor who'd come back to done some minor repairs to the new build home um, because they were used to seeing contractors come in, coming in and out. And so as she went into the garage, which was open, um, he came from the home into the garage. Um, there was a, a door leading into the, into the home, inside the garage. And he walked into the garage from the home and said, hey, what time does your dad get home? And she said, oh, about six o'clock. And he said, do you have a, a piece of paper where you can write down a number so he can call me? And she said, yeah, just a minute. And she went into the house. Well, he followed her right back in. And uh, he grabbed her around the throat, held a knife to her, uh, to her throat. And he subsequently raped her. He had her hands um, tied behind her back. He had her feet tied together. He had a gag in her mouth. She was nude. He had raped her and taken her belt and began to strangle her with her own belt while he was on her back. And at the very instant that that belt broke, at that very instant, her brother came into the house. Don Miller was distracted and he turned his attention toward Randy, her brother. He got Randy by the throat, took him upstairs. And while he sat on Randy's back, he tried to cut Randy's throat. Randy was uh, a little kid at the time, but he began to struggle and fight and he managed to grab the knife and throw it under the bed. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> so Don Miller grabbed him around the throat with his bare hands and began to strangle it. And Randy, <clears throat> excuse me, Randy uh, passed out from being strangled and Miller turned him over and thrust and they grabbed the knife from under the bed and stabbed him twice in the in the chest while this was going on lisa's downstairs with her hands still tied behind her back she can hear randy screaming upstairs before he loses consciousness she takes that opportunity to run and she flees the home naked with her hands tied behind her back runs into traffic and flags down help the one of the two vehicles that she flags down is the fire chief for Delta Township. He gets on the radio, calls for help, gets her in his car. The other guy pulls into the driveway and confronts Don Miller coming out of the house and says to him, hey, is there a, a boy that's hurt in there, a little boy? Miller goes, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And the guy says to him, you better wait here till the police get here. And Miller takes that opportunity to bolt. He jumps in his car, locks the door, and races off. But the witness gets his license plate number. And within an hour, Don Miller is in custody. That was the last time Don Miller was free to this day. If this hadn't gone down the way it went down, especially with the, he didn't probably expect the boy, um, that it would have been number five and there's no reason to believe he wouldn't have kept going. Oh, absolutely. They, Randy and Lisa, uh, had Randy not been there, Lisa would have been his fifth victim. And if he had been successful in killing Randy and Lisa hadn't fled the house, Randy would have been number six. Absolutely. There's no question. Uh, they tried to interview him that night and, and, it didn't matter what they said to him. You know, we have your license number. We have a witness who described you and identified you from a photograph. Um, we've got you dead to rights. And he continued to deny it. I don't know how it could be me. I'm a Christian. Um, I, I, you know, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. He hid behind his religion. He still does to this very day. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but they recovered one fingerprint inside the home that belonged to Miller. I mean, they had him uh, cold, uh, but he continued to deny it. 
And so he went on trial for the rape and the attempted murder of both Lisa and her brother. And he was convicted. During that trial, he, uh, his defense was that um, there were demons in that house and that he was going in to rid the demons from that house and save Lisa and Randy. Now, something that I noticed. Um, I'm the, sorry, I, we need to pause here where my audience laughs. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't want to make light of it, but I, I even just to, you know, for an attorney go, yeah, go ahead. We'll, you know, we're, we're, you know, we'll put that out there. Well, this whole, this whole demon defense started as I recall, and, and part of this didn't go in the book, but um, Don Miller was sent to uh, the forensic center for psychiatric evaluation immediately after um, his, his, uh, preliminary examination. At about that same time, the son of Sam killings were going on. And uh, David Berkowitz had, uh, I think he might've just been convicted at that point, but there was a newspaper article that about that, where he said his whole defense about the, the demon dog and stuff was all made up. It was all made up. Incidentally, at about that same time, Miller wrote a letter to his defense attorney from the Forensic Psychiatric Center coming up with this demon defense. Oh, I had these dreams and um, there's this demon. And so my own suspicions, and I have nothing to prove this, uh, is that maybe Miller saw some reporting about the Son of Sam defense and thought, well, it's all I got. And he knew he was going to prison for 20 to 40 years, 20 to 30 years. And everybody thought, well, we still have these three missing women and the body of Marita Choquette, but we won't have to worry about Don Miller anymore because he'll, he'll be gone for 20 to 30 years. Well, while, the, while he was waiting um, his sentencing, a grand jury was indicted in the Lansing area and indicted Don Miller in two of the four missing women cases. Then they indicted him in the disappearance of Martha Sue Young and Christine Stewart. <clears throat> they had nothing to tie him to the disappearance of Marita Choquette and her body or the disappearance of Wendy Bush. And so they could only indict him for second degree murder for Martha Sue Young because they found blood in, her, in his car um, there was a tie to that. And then they had the witness in the Christine Stewart uh, um, disappearance. So they charge him with two counts of second degree murder. They don't charge him with first degree murder because they figured second degree murder, they can, they can substantiate the sudden uh, murder without, without premeditation. They probably could have convicted him for the first degree murder of those two women, but they knew that they'd lose that on appeal to the Supreme Court. And so they went with the second degree murder charges. So Don Miller goes to prison for the rape of Lisa Gilbert and the attempted murder of her and her brother. He is now facing trial in two of the four disappearances. Now he's got to go back to trial. Well, his defense attorney, and the prison psychiatrist decide that if Don goes under hypnosis, maybe he'll come up with the location of the bodies and they can broker a plea deal for him in exchange for that. And so the defense attorney comes up with this plea deal and approaches the Ingham County prosecuting attorney, who incidentally based his entire uh, election campaign on doing away with plea bargaining. So now here he is, he's got a murder and three other missing women. And the only way to find their bodies is to plea bargain with the killer. What a decision he's got to make. 
a difficult, difficult decision that he has to make. And I think he made the right one that he accepted the plea offer. Uh, Miller did. And the plea deal was that if he would lead police to Martha Sue Young's body and to Christine Stewart's body, that they would reduce the second degree murder charges to manslaughter and he could plead guilty to those. Now, just so the audience keeps that they picked those two crimes and that's what they're dealing with. There's no, I guess, no really reason technically to bring in Bush, but he knows where Bush's body is too. I mean, we assume he killed Bush as well, but he's never confessed to that in any plea deal. So no one said, okay, we're going to fold that in. We won't give you any more time. You're going to be 150 years old. Can you give us some closure on Bush? So I don't know. Did they ask him? They did. It it, it was funny. Um, It really is funny um, in this particular case, because uh, one of the assistant prosecuting attorneys is a very good friend of mine. And he, and he told me, he said, Miller had already confessed in the hypnosis sessions in prison uh, to Martha Sue Young's disappearance and Christine Stewart's. And they knew that he killed Marita Choquette and they knew that he killed Wendy Bush, even though they had nothing to prove it. And so Mike Woodworth says to Miller, he says, you know, Don, he says, uh, I'm going to go have to find a new job now. And Don Miller looks at him and said, well, why is that? And he said, well, they only hired me to work on these cases. And now, now these bodies have been found. I'm going to have to go find a new job. And Miller kind of looked puzzled and, and Woodworth looked at him and he said, you know what, Don, I'm going to go back to the office and I'm going to type up a warrant for you for Wendy Bush's death. He says, I'm going to charge you in that. And he goes, you can't do that. You can't do that. And he turned toward one of the other detectives and said to him, he said, can he do that? And the other detective said, oh, yeah, he's crazy. Mike Woodworth is crazy. And the next uh, session uh, of regressive psychotherapy or hypnosis, Miller claimed that he knew Wendy Bush, but had nothing to do with her disappearance. They came out and told the, the prosecutor that and they looked at each other and went, he killed her. There's no doubt. And so subsequent to that, uh, Miller did confess under hypnosis to uh, Marita Choquette's murder and to Wendy Bush's. And he ended up taking authorities to Wendy Bush's body also. But it did bring closure. So all all remains were discovered. Ultimately. Yes. Yeah. And so the, the the important thing to remember here is that At the time, and this was the late 70s in Michigan, the Michigan sentencing guidelines for the Department of Corrections and for the judicial system uh, meant that uh, Miller would serve all of his sentences concurrently or at the same time. And the significance of that is is the reason for the plea deal. In other words, um, the prosecuting attorney knew that even if Miller were convicted of second degree murder, he would not serve any more time than he was already serving for the assault on the Gilbert children. And so they figured, well, if we can get him to plead to a death in a manslaughter case, at least that'll be on his records because he's not gonna get any more time than if we convict him of manslaughter or if we convict him of second degree murder. And so the families eventually agreed to it and that's how that all transpired. Now, I, I want to add at, at, at this point, one of the things that um, is very heart-wrenching in the book. Um, there, first of all, again, you've talked about how, you know, cause of deaths of, of a couple of the uh, missing women and the hands cut off and the horrible way they died. But what, what really got to me was the, the testimony that Lisa Gilbert gave in the assault trial 
And the cross, you've got to read this, folks. I mean, I can't do it justice here. I'd have to read it, you know, pages and pages. But it shows a a strong young lady and who is in essence also protecting her brother. I mean, she's getting him convicted, uh, Don Miller, for what he did to her, but what he did to her brother. I can't imagine, imagine either of those children ever had a good life afterwards from what they were through. So to have to discuss at 14 in that time, penetration and all this stuff by, by Don Miller uh, and the stuff, you know, in questioning, you know, and that's what def I understand. That's what defense attorneys do to question. Well, you said you were blind or you had a gag. Why, why, how could you talk or that try again, just, trying to poke holes yes. when, when you have, I mean, you have a naked 14 year old bound partially running into the road. So, and, and then she's examined, I'm sure by doctors that could tell exactly what happened to her, but she has to testify that that man there that's sitting at that table, not only did he do X, then she had to explain in minutia the X. Now, I'm hoping this was not a televised trial. No, no, it was not. As a matter of fact, uh, from the beginning, um, right after his immediate arrest, they cleared the courtroom and never allowed any spectators in there. So it was very, it was a closed trial. Yes. So he is, uh, as we say, there's a, there's a current issue to this. Of course, this 1978 goes away for many years, but and in all cases, there is is a parole, and he uh, was was the how many times was he up for parole? In other words, how many hearings did he go to? As far as I know, up to today, it's been uh, nine or ten times that he's been up for parole. So um, let's jump ahead to the late nineties. Okay, Don Miller has been in prison for twenty years, almost twenty years. And about 1994-ish, I think it was, uh, <clears throat> up in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula is uh, the Kinross Correctional Facility. And that's where Don was spending his time. And he was in a prison dorm with three other um, inmates, two other inmates. And uh, during a shakedown, one of the corrections officers discovered what's commonly called a garrote. It is a strangulation device. It is strictly an offensive weapon. It is not a defensive weapon. You have to be behind someone to make it effective. And it's a strangulation device. Uh, that was concealed in his footlocker with his name on it, in his area of control, as they called it. And because the prison system gets so many weapons violations, you know, uh, prisoners making shanks and, and uh, various types of weapons. They're never charged criminally, uh, which would, could result in like a five-year additional prison sentence. So Don Miller um, admitted that that was his. There's no question. He said, yep, that's mine. It's from an old coat. Um, and I was, I was saving it to use it for some, on something else. So let me describe it uh, for your listening audience. It was a 72-inch shoelace that was folded uh, in two and knotted in the center with two um, wooden barrel-shaped buttons, almost like a root beer barrel, um, wooden barrel-shaped buttons on either end as handles, okay? So he was charged administratively with possessing a garage in the prison they took away his good time and they transferred him down to Jackson prison in Southern Michigan. And, uh, and that was it. That that's what his uh, punishment was for that. Um, and again, he didn't deny it. So by 1999, he's getting ready to get out of prison. He has served his time for the two manslaughters, for the rape and the attempted murder of Lisa and Randy Gilbert. He's getting out. In Lansing, um, the, the 
Eaton County prosecuting attorney, the Ingham County prosecuting attorney, a very well-known psychiatrist, nationally known psychiatrist uh, by the name of Frank Ockberg, uh, who I might add coined the phrase, the uh, Stockholm syndrome, if you've ever heard of that. A very well-known psychiatrist, along with corrections officers, uh, victims' families, police officers, they all form this group called the Committee for Community Awareness and Protection, CCAP. And their sole purpose is to find a way to keep Don Miller in prison because he's getting out. Now, there's, there's uh, pending legislation at the time uh, that would allow the courts to quarantine an individual that gets out of prison but they still deem a danger to society. And he would be institutionalized until, uh, until such time as they do. Every, every state deals with what, you know, we euphemistically call civil commitment. And it's, exactly. a, sticky, it's a sticky wicket, but at it times is. they're not nuts, but they're not safe. And so, yes, they've served their, 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 their time. They had a determinate sentence. It's over. You can't hold them anymore. That's but, correct. So, um, so that legislation didn't make it through the, the state house or the state Senate. So they're left with nothing. And Peter Houck, who was the original prosecuting attorney who agreed to the plea deal, said, you know, the best thing you can find out about a person is to look through their prison records. So they start going through and they discover this Garat case from three or four years earlier. And... Uh, Jeff Sauter, the Eaton County prosecuting attorney, who has a, really a commitment to Lisa and Randy, even though he wasn't the prosecutor at the time, they're still his. They're, that's still, that, they're still his victims. And so he uh, goes up to Chippewa County, which is in uh, the UP of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula, and meets with their prosecutor, even though Miller's now been transferred down to Jackson, the offense occurred up there and says, will you charge him with possessing a weapon inside the prison? And they agree to do that. Jeff Sauter, the Ingham County prosecutor at the time, and Jeff all go to Chippewa County. They're sworn in as special prosecutors up there. And the three prosecutors handle that case and prosecute Don Miller for possessing a garrot inside the prison. And that and got him how much more time? He was convicted by a jury of 12, and he received 20 to 40 more years. Now, let me add one thing here that normally would result in like a five-year prison sentence if you're convicted, uh, but the fact that they also convicted him as a habitual offender under Michigan law allows the judge to go outside the sentencing guidelines and sentence him up to life in prison. And so the judge went with 20 to 40 additional years. So uh, for your uh, listeners, and, and I say this in every interview I did, it's important um, to understand that Don Miller is not in prison right now for murder. He's not in prison for attempted murder. He's not in prison for rape. He's done his time for that. The only reason Don Miller is still in prison is for possessing a garrote in 1993. And in 2031, Don Miller's getting out, whether you like it or not. But in the meantime, he can he is up for parole. And I'm glad you've clarified the parole is not for assault, not for attempted murder, not for desecration of bodies. It's for the garage. That's what he is being. That's what the hearings are to say. Are you rehabilitated and should we let you go? And there has been, correct. as you said, one a hearing just last week, correct? That's correct. Uh, he actually had a hearing. And I say a hearing in the past, it's been a hearing in front of a parole board member uh, because of the coronavirus and the pandemic. Uh, this was a phone interview uh, with him, and there was uh, 
just a, a massive amount of, of letters from the public that were sent to the parole board urging them to make the correct decision and not release him. And we received word just, I'm gonna say three or four days ago that his parole has been denied again. However, he will be eligible within the next year um, again um, under the consideration of the parole board, whether or not uh, he'll have a hearing to be released. I will say that the parole board, uh, I believe they take, they don't just take into account the Garat case, they take into account his past cases. So let me, um, let me go into just a, a little bit here. Uh, I was lucky enough um, through his defense attorney, who was an acquaintance of mine, um, to um, become literally uh, uh, acquainted with his dad, Don Miller's dad. And I said to his dad, do you think Don would do a face-to-face -face interview with me? And he said, I don't believe that he would, but I will talk to him and, and um, we'll see. And so uh, his dad got back in touch with me and said, he's going to write you a letter. And I thought, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. And lo and behold, on Easter Sunday morning, because we were having guests the day before Easter, and so I didn't get out to the mailbox to check the mail. So Easter Sunday, I go out to the mailbox, and what do I find? A letter from the serial killer. Now, I'm just going to tell you that my wife was less than pleased about that. But with that being said, uh, I, I have received three or four letters from him. And the one letter that he did send me, uh, he told me ahead of time that he would be writing me a letter that would explain what he was going through at the time of the murders. Now, the letter that you can read in the book, it's in the, it's in the book. He put right in the letter, um, I can put this in. And so I did. And I wrote him and I said, it's going as a postscript in the book. Um, and he said, that sounds like a good place for it. And he said in the letter that he and uh, Martha Sue Young had a relationship, that she refused to talk about their problems. And that caused his anger to uh, continue to build. Um, and basically, he threw the blame on her in my opinion, um, that it was her fault that she got murdered. Um, if you read between the lines, that's what it's saying. It's her fault. She wouldn't talk to me. Um, she kept everything inside. Um, and so I took her life. Basically, that's what the letter says. And then he says, not, a subsequent to that, I took the lives of three other women because they were copycats. They reminded me of her. Now, I'm going to tell you the significance that I think of the letter. And that is that Don Miller never mentions, not once in any of the correspondence that I got, and particularly that letter, the rape and attempted murder of Lisa Gilbert and Randy Gilbert. Never mentions it. And I think that's significant. Okay. And the reason that I do is because Don Miller has said from the beginning that Marita Choquette's murder, Wendy Bush's murder, and Christine Stewart's murder were all copycats. They all reminded him of Martha Sue Young. Incidentally, while the police went on uh, a theory that there was some um, similar appearance to him, I don't buy that. I don't think there was, especially Wendy Bush, who had long blonde hair. But with that being said, the reason that I think it's significant that he doesn't mention that in his letter is that that doesn't jive with his accounting of, oh, those were, those were all copycat murders. How, do you, how does that reconcile with raping a 14-year-old girl? It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't. it doesn't. And I'm just going to tell you right now that I think Don Miller is a psychopath. He has no remorse for what he's done. Absolutely none. From day one, he has it. Now, there's some new developments in this case, too, beyond the parole 
if you'd like to hear those. Please. The only thing I can tell you is what I've read in the paper. And that, seriously, um, a woman has come forth and said that on the day that Lisa and Randy were attacked in 1978, she was also attacked by Don Miller and she managed to escape. Now, that case is being investigated. Um, supposedly, um, she recognized his photo from the paper when, when my book came out and they were doing the stories about everything in the parole and they put some pictures of him back then um, in the paper and she feels that uh, he is the person responsible for her attack. And that case is being investigated. If that is true, if that case is legitimate and can be um, substantiated, it could be the catalyst for further action. Um, what that might be, I don't know. And again, I really know nothing more than, than what I've seen in the paper. But, but there's some concern because in 2031, Don Miller's getting out of prison and Don Miller has already shown his propensity for teenage girls. And he'll only be 76 years old when he gets out. Now, you mentioned you wanted me to remind you about the clothing and you and yes. you have some information as to um, why it was. Obviously, uh, she did not vaporize. Uh, that was staged by him. And, and, and you're, you know why? Yes. Um, I, just to give you a little background, um, when I was researching the book, I, are you familiar with a FOIA request? F-O-I-A? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So I sent a FOIA request to the Michigan State Police, and I wanted their files on Don Miller. I already had the East Lansing Police files and the Ingham County Sheriff's files and MSU files, but I wanted MSP's files. Well, MSP really... Um, weren't involved in the cases other than more of a support role. In other words, the searching for the bodies and, um, you know, the forensic stuff at the crime lab. And so I thought they would send me the lab reports and they sent me this huge packet of information. It, it's about two inches thick and it is all letters that Don Miller wrote to uh, another author who was a retired state trooper who was writing a book about serial killers. And uh, so I have all of those letters that he wrote to this author, um, which the author never published. And in one of those letters, he describes uh, the reason that he laid the, that clothing out like that. And he said, it was nothing more than a decoy. There was no ritualistic religious theme to it. He put that clothing out there as a decoy, hoping that the police helicopter, because they, he knew that the police were flying helicopters everywhere, searching for a body, they would see that uh, clothing and they would uh, concentrate their efforts in that area and not where he subsequently put the body. That's all there was to it. There was no, no secret, oh, sacrificial religious uh, no demons. No demons? No. No demons. No demons. No demons. No well, listen, demons. Uh, my head is spinning, Rod, but I have a better understanding of this case. And I hope I've also interested uh, my audience in getting the book, which, of course, is available Amazon and is available probably Barnes and Noble. I got mine, I think, at Barnes through Barnes and Noble. And soon it will be in libraries. They, these things take a little while to, to catch on. And you got an interesting endorsement for the book from a very unlikely source, Don Miller's father. So I received a uh, phone call from the killer's dad, uh, who I had come to know. And uh, I could tell he'd been uh, crying. And he said to me, uh, I'm having trouble reading your book. And I said, well, I'm sure that you are. And uh, he said, I didn't know some of the stuff that you put in this book. And I said, well, I'm sure you didn't. And he said, I just wanted to tell you, you did a good job. And I happen to agree. Well, I want to thank our guest again today, uh, Rod Sadler, 
the book under discussion today, Killing Women. I also recommend you go back and listen to Rod's uh, first podcast with us on his other book, To Hell I Must Go. I think you'll find that fascinating. And I also have a feeling Rod and I will probably be getting together again soon. Hmm? Yes, yes, we will. I have another book in the works. Great. In the meantime, I also want to thank my loyal listeners. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please tell your friends. And also visit the website at www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There you can leave me an email, comments about the shows, and maybe even suggest a topic, a case you'd like me to give the murder most foul treatment to. In the meantime, please stay safe, and for God's sake, don't murder anyone. (laughs) 